Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? If you have not already, please consider picking up a copy of my book. It's called In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, and you don't have to be a total plant nut like us to enjoy it. There is something in there for everyone as long as you're curious about the natural world. It is available wherever books are sold. And speaking of the wonder of plants, my guest today is with us in celebrating how interesting and amazing plants can truly be. Joining us from the University of Wisconsin-Madison is PhD student Melody Sane. Melody is particularly interested in studying how and why different plants have sex. Specifically, she looks at the genetic underpinnings of sex in plants. And to do that, she's looking at a group of plants many of us will be familiar with, the ruse in the genus Thelictrum. It's really fascinating research, and it just goes to show you how amazing the world of plants can be, and just how different plants can be from one another. I'm going to let her explain this all to you because she's an incredible science communicator, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Melody Sane. I hope you enjoy. All right, Melody Sane, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right. So I am Melody Sane, and I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the botany department. And my journey into botany was not the most straightforward at all. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Let's hear it. Yes. I, I always hate to admit, I have to tell people, I'm like, I was the person that thought plants were boring. Like, who cares about plants? They just sit around and do nothing. <laughs> um, and so um, I went in to undergrad wanting to be a dentist. So I was the you know pre-med person wanting to go into dentistry. Um, I'm also the type of person that really enjoys to have fun and I like to enjoy my life. Um, and so during <laughs> undergrad, <laughs> um, I started to not enjoy what I was doing mm. so much. When I got into like the biochem and I was just like, is this what I want to do? And then I started thinking about, you know, dentist school, like, oh, it's just like more of this just cramming knowledge, <laughs> studying for tests, like that's all it is. And so I let myself venture into the fact that I really liked reptiles and amphibians. Mm. So I kind of transitioned in the middle of my undergrad uh, during my end of my sophomore year into herpetology hmm. with the thoughts of, okay, I think I would like to do research. Although I'm at a small school, so I still don't even, I'm like, I don't know what research is really. <laughs> what does it like, even look like? 
what does that look like? Yes. So I go to my advisor um, and I talk to him about it. He's like, okay, this is cool. He's excited because he's a herpetologist, you know, so he's gotten this dentist major into herpetology. Nice. Um, I did some herpetology research with him, myself and my best friend. We ended up doing kind of a GIS survey of this natural area, just kind of marking the boundaries of it, doing transects, and then looking at whatever reptiles and amphibians we came across because they had no idea what was out there. So we're doing that. And then slowly comes in plants. So (laughs) my last year in undergrad, (laughs) there was a class, plant taxonomy. No one wants to take plant taxonomy (laughs) because it's super hard and plants are boring. (laughs) So you put it off till the end, (laughs) wait till the end and take that. Um, And so I take it, the teacher's first sentence in the class was that she knows that most of us are there because it's a requirement and that we don't want to be there but that she hopes that she can share her love of plants to us and that at least one of us leaves with a better appreciation for plants Uh oh. so (laughs) here's me last semester and that student was me (laughs) and that student was me yes so i show up to my herpetologist advisor Uh and i'm like so um i still want to go to graduate school but i think i want to study plants (laughs) (laughs) and Uh... he was just like what really (laughs) plants plants oh (laughs) and i was like yes they're so cool and he was like cool did you say cool (laughs) oh no Cool. I was like, yeah, I was like, I know. I was like, they got me. I was like, I just didn't know that there was so much to know about plants. And once I feel like you open that door, there's there's just no going back because before you didn't notice them and now you notice a new one all the time. <laughs> basically. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of how I got started wow. in plants. One course changed my life. Um, and so then meandered my way into master's uh, school, which was also kind of interesting because I went, I ended up going to the University of Texas at Tyler. Hmm. So when I first went there, because one once again, I know more about herpetology, not plants. I don't know how to get into plants. Hmm. And so I was originally going to speak with the herpetologist. And just so happens the one botanist that's in the building, which it's usually like there's this one botanist if it's a, if it's a biology department. Right, right. Aimlessly wandering. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. <laughs> and he sees me in the hallway and he was like, hey, Melanie, are you here visiting, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, would you like to chat? And I'm like, sure. Who? who all right. Yeah. Random. Why not? Why not? Um, and so we just started chatting and I found out he is the botanist and he's doing this research on um, an endemic rose mallow that's only Whoa. found in East Texas. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Nice. Like, wow. So that's how I got into like actually researching. Wow. <laughs> um, I feel really bad about like not going the herpetologist way, but eh, I, I think that's how life is. Right. It just it just kind of happens. Um, so yeah, so I ended up getting my master's and 
within that, I was basically looking at this endemic rose mallow, so this hibiscus, that's only in East Texas. And it has these other two more common hibiscus plants that grow along with it. Um, And they're more widespread across the states. Um, And so I basically did a very small genetic analysis because I also didn't, it's also crazy. My story into science is just kind of crazy how I'm doing the research I'm doing because I also, I came from a small school, did not have a big genetics Mm. background. Um, And I was also before doing more like field related research, not Mm. genetics. I wasn't in labs. Um, So now I'm having to do genetics work. I'm like, I've never done this. So I spent a spring break learned how to extract DNA and sequence it from A to Z all in my spring break week. Spring break. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Fun. Oh, what boy. did you do? Yeah. Graduate students. Yeah. Welcome. Did work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so um, I learned all the genetics work. Um, and so I did really small. It was just like one gene, but That, along with ecological niche modeling, I kind of looked at whether or not this endemic, endangered, rare species is actually a species, Mm. Uh, because that's a whole nother debate to go into. (laughs) Real can of worms there. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so... With this, there was also this other big pressure of the fact that they were wanting to build a dam um, near the Uh. habitat. And so if I was to say it's not a species and it's not listed anymore, eesh. no pressure, <laughs> no pressure at all. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So during my um, defense, there were people in the room, you know, waiting to just hear what, what are wow. you going to say? Um, and in the end for where my research had stopped, it was basically, it looked like it could be a variant of one of the more common ones okay so it wasn't necessarily a hybrid of the two but it was a variant and for me it's maintaining diversity yeah it's something that you need to protect and i only used one gene so yeah you can't you can't base anything <laughs> off of that um and and nowadays i think about it I'm like, <laughs> one gene yeah cute <laughs> so funny oh boy <laughs> um, but like I say, from where I began and what I knew, I was like, I'm coming a long way. Yeah. So from there, um, I met my current advisor, David Baum, at an evolution conference where I was presenting my research. And he also works with Malbasie. So he works with Baobabs. And so he was oh. coming by my poster because I was working in Malbasie with hibiscus. So just checking it out. And he mentioned if I'd ever thought of UW-Madison. And I was like, "Mm, sure. Why not? Why not? Um, So came to visit. um, And now here I am um, (laughs) at UW-Madison. And and it's also crazy every time I think about it, just like how I got here and my, my background, because I also... From high school, I came from like a low income, low resource school. So science was not um, taught um, a lot, I guess. Like, um, it wasn't very vigorous. Sure. Um, yeah. We're more so trying to, you know, pass standardized tests. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was a little uh, interesting. I'm like, my first semester in undergrad, you know, chemistry, and they're like, light the Bunsen burner. And I was like, whoa. Huh? 
What's a Bunsen burner yeah. and flames? Let's back up Terrifying. here for a sec. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I like to tell people, if you have an interest and you're passionate about it, it might be an up and down journey, but you, you can get there. So, yeah, I always like to yeah. let people know that. But, yeah, so here I am at UW, um, and I would like to go into academia. So I would like to be a professor. And so I told my advisor when trying to think of research, I was like, I'd like to come up with my own project just because that's a big thing. If you want to yeah. be a professor, you might want to need to be able to come up with projects. <laughs> yeah. Good foresight <laughs> on that one. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, if you can't, then you might want to think about a different right. career path. Right. Um, so he, he gave me that liberty to do that. Nice. Um. <laughs> Which also, you know, leads to bumps and ups and downs. Oh, yeah. So, so I first started working with the Malvasi plant, Calaroe. Ooh. Which, yes. So I guess before I say that, I should first start with, first we were discussing what were my research interests. And I was just kind of thinking, and I was like, one thing that just really fascinates me about plants are the many sexual systems mm. that they have. And so I was like, I'm interested in the evolution of sexual systems. And then to get a little bit more focused, I was interested in unisexuality. So in diese, so having separate male and female plants, because for me as a plant, if you can't move, (laughs) why would you want to have separate male and female plants? Because, you know, most flowers, you have your stamens, your male parts, and your carpels. They're all on one flower. This makes sense to me. So that was the idea. So I found this group within Malvasi, Calaroe. And in that group, there were gynodioecious species. And so gynodioecious species are ones where you have, in the population, you have female plants. So plants that only have carpels, so the female reproductive organs. And then you have plants that are hermaphroditic, so bisexual. Mm. They have both the male and the female. So gynodioecious, because the hermaphroditics are acting as the male and the females mm. are female. So in that group, there were some gynodioecious species. And then it was also sister to this group called Napia, which was monotypic. So only has um, one species, Napia. Uh, it's a glade water mallow, and mm. it was dioecious. Hmm. So I was like, hmm, interesting. So these are two close groups. So I had two kind of questions like, is Napia actually maybe a Calaroe? And if maybe I could kind of look at some of the evolutionary transitions to Diece. So like maybe some of those gynodioecious species are heading towards Diece. Hmm. Well, here comes those bumps. (laughs) 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 Yes. Uh, two years yep two years um of field research to texas and back collecting and um mind you this is me coming up with my own project so it's not like there's funding for it so (laughs) um my advisor and i were also like okay funding and i'm needing to get sequencing done because i'm wanting to understand the genomic architecture of sex determination Mm. basically so what is determining unisexuality? So my advisor is going to be like, you know, this is a great project. I'm going to like foot the bill because I know that it'll be fine. You'll right. get money. It'll be okay. And I'm like, whoa, okay. 
nervous. Pressure? <laughs> yes. I'm like, give me one more second. Like, I need to do one more, like, deep dive, see if there's something I've missed. <laughs> and lo and behold, oh, no. <laughs> um, I find that there's this paper on Napia. Can't find it anywhere. It's on microfilm at the university. <laughs> oh. Done by, yes, done by a student. If I can recall correctly, it was 1928. Oh, jeez. Research study, yes. And they transplanted um, Napia. And whenever they transplanted it, they realized, because they um, had watched it over, I believe it was four years, and they noticed that there were sex reversals. Uh. So some of the female plants were males, some of the males were females um, <laughs> over the years. And I was like, whoa. Where's this been? (laughs) Why? Why has nobody said this? Um, So that is also like um, a little project that I would really like to do, because at that point I realized uh, I'm not going to find this genetic mechanism determining this. Um, And so then at that point, I was like, okay, note to self, I really want to come back to the sex reversals in Napia because that's super interesting. Yeah. And so I go to my advisor with this, and then he brings up the lictrum. And once again, I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> I know I wanted to do my own project. Yeah. <laughs> but I would have taken, like, a, maybe you should look at the lictrum. Yeah, just a little, like, slide it across the table. Think, of the, think about it. About this, yeah. yeah. So he had had a previous postdoc student that had worked with Polyctrum, and he found like the sex determination in it kind of interesting. But they were more interested in understanding the evolution of wind and insect pollination within the mm. group. So yeah, so there's some insect pollinated ones and there's wind pollinated ones. So that's more of the route that they went. And so he was like, so I think it might be a good one to work with. I'm like, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and so now here I am with the Lictrum. Um, and so some of the things about the Lictrum that made it kind of cool and interesting as to like why I want to look at sex determination within it is because in this group of species, there's about 200 species. Oh, wow. Yeah. Give or take within the genus. And in this genus, there are two separate dioecious clades. So there are two clades that are made up of dioecious species. So I'll call there's one that's clade A that has six species in it. And then there's clade C that has seven species in it. Hmm. So that's interesting. So you have these two independent origins of dioecy. So I'm like, all right, so that's cool. So I can see what is causing genetic sex determination and look and see if these two independent origins in this group have used the same evolutionary mechanisms to achieve Mm. this, or if it's completely different. And as plants like to be difficult, I would assume it will be completely different things. (laughs) plants are cool like that yeah yeah (laughs) so there's that so we have these two independent origins of diece and so the within these two groups so in the group c there is thelictrum dioicum and thelictrum dioicum is like one of like the main ones i'm looking at it's located here um locally it's on campus like right across from my building um so muir woods was one of my little uh (laughs) Old sites. Nice. 
leave leave the office, walk across the Google, <laughs> right in. <laughs> yes. So within Flickrom.org, um, there was a study done by Veronica in 2005, where she was looking at the sexual dimorphisms within Philictrum. And what they found was that within the floral organ identity genes, so the genes that are responsible for making your petals, uh, your stamens, your carpels, your sepals, the little green structures usually that hold up your petals, there's this class of genes called Mads Box genes. And um, so you have in the very simple form, um, and this has been modified as most things are, but in a very simple form. <laughs> Biology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you have these A, B, and C class genes, and they kind of stack up where you have A and C. So if you have two blocks, like you have A and C blocks beside each other, and then the B block on top of the A and C. So like kind of covering both of them. Mm-hmm. Your A genes are responsible for creating sepals. Your B and your A genes, so there's some A genes and B genes together, are responsible for your petals. Okay. And then you have the B and the C genes for your stamens. And then the C genes for carpels. Whoa. Yeah. So that's like a simple way of (laughs) (laughs) kind of try to say it um does that kind of make does that make sense yeah yeah it sounds like you know these combinations are really kind of driving you know basic structures like uh the scaffolding and then slight tweaks can then decide what happens after that yes okay yes. cool yes that, that, that that's good i'm on um, it <laughs> yeah so with looking at the unisexuality and the lictrum, The main focus is on these B and C class genes because they're the ones that are responsible for making the stamens and the carpels. And I'm just going to say B and C because that works. (laughs) You know, things get complicated and I'll start getting confused and (laughs) 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 And we'll all be confused. Um, A big party. (laughs) Yes. Um, So. Within this 2005 study that Veronica and her colleagues did, they were looking at these B and C class genes, and they saw that when they knocked out the B genes in the Lictrum thalictroides, which is a hermaphroditic species in Lictrum, so it's bisexual, so it has both male and female organs, knocking out those B genes transformed the stamens into carpels. Huh. So therefore, transitioning this hermaphroditic plant into a female plant. Wow. And the same was true in Lictrum dioicum um, with the male plants. So with that thought, since that was responsible, they kind of thought maybe like it's a homeotic dimorphism causing this change within the lictrum. So you just have like this homeotic gene and that a mutation in that gene is causing that transition either into developing male stamens or female carpels. Hmm. Um, That makes sense. So that's also another thing that kind of makes the lictrum kind of cool to study for unisexuality. And so in this LaRue et al. study, 
they supposed this single locus instead of there being a two locus model for getting to diese. And so basically what they're thinking is in your wild population of hermaphroditic plants, you have this B locus on this B class gene, because that's the one that they found was causing the transitions. And so what they hypothesized is that there was a gain of function dominant mutation in that B-class gene in the wild type, which then brought in your male plants. Hmm. And then you have an androdioecious population where you have male and your wild type hermaphroditic species. Okay. If if that makes sense. So you have like a gain of functions on this this single locus in the gene. You have a gain of function. You have that then you're going to be male. If you don't have it, you're still going to be hermaphroditic. And so then after time, you know, evolutionary time, stabilization of the males in the population, then at that same B locus, they hypothesized that there would be a loss of function, recessive allele that would replace the wild type. So that wild type B would no longer be in the population. And so you would just have this loss of function, recessive B allele and this gain of function. So Hmm. if you have that gain of function, the B dominant, you would be male and the recessive one, you would be female. Hmm. So that's kind of the model that they hypothesized. And so for my research, what I'm doing. So mind you, remember, this is where I come into like, I don't know how I got here, (laughs) because... I am still this person that had never done genetics before. Remember just yeah. one one week. Spring <laughs> break. Spring break one week. Woo, and now I'm like, huh, wow. you know what I want to do? <laughs> I want to uh, figure out sex determination. Where, what gene? I want to do a yeah. genome assembly. Yeah. That's what, that's... No big deal. Another no break. Big. Another break. I mean, Christmas. Maybe <laughs> Christmas break. <laughs> Yes. And so I have somehow just jumped in to genomics and it's one of those things that I've just been almost like a learning as you go, which I think all graduate students, (laughs) they feel that, you know, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm figuring it out. (laughs) (laughs) Might be some tears along the way, but that's all part of the process, you know. Just a few. If you don't cry, then you, you were you didn't get it. <laughs> Too, <No>. easy. No. <laughs> Too easy. Too um, easy. So, yeah. So now I'm working on creating a draft genome assembly of Lictrum dioecum. And I'm also going to try to do um, a draft genome of Daisy Carpum. But I believe it will be super fragmented because it has a ridiculously large Genome. Um, Well, it's not ridiculously large compared to Dioicum and me trying to um, do the most cost effective. (laughs) Yes. Budget Um, concerns. Yes. It has a rather large genome because it's about three, three gigs. And it's like a, I can never remember the name to say about this. So I say 11 Floyd. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That at least puts it into context. Yes, yes. Um, and and so there's some hesitations there, but no. I'm working on that. And then I am working on, so 
the assemblies of males will be used for basically mapping of short read sequencing that I have. So in my experiment, what I did was, um, so mind you, before, if you remember, I had to do that uh, transition from one thing to the other, although I have no samples. I went from calorie to the lictrum. So Veronica DeSillo, wonderful collaborator. Uh, she is also a committee member on my committee now. Nice. Um, she kindly provided DNA samples from some crosses that she had done. Oh. And so basically I got these two full sit families where I had 10 males and 10 females from one cross. And then I had 10 males and 10 females from a second cross. And what I decided to do was I combined each of those. And so uh, I refer to them as like my male one and my male two. And so if I, so as I go along, I may refer male one, male two, female, female two. Those are these crosses that have been combined. So they actually consist of a mixture of 10 individuals. And so I pulled those all together um, and I did Illumina sequencing with them, uh, short read Illumina sequencing for each of those. And then basically what I did is I divided the sequencing from each of those into camers of length 21 for now. And I'll be looking at different camer lengths. And camers are basically, if you have a read per se, like in mine, there were 125 base pairs. It's basically just a number that you're dividing the read into. So 125 base pairs. So now I'm going to have 15 over a sliding window across. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of just kind of chopping it up so you're not looking at this big, long thing all at once? Yes. Okay. So so a camera is just like a little portion of the long sequence. Right on. Basically. Cool. So I basically made these camera distributions of my males and my females, and then I did comparisons. So I compared male ones, camers, and female ones, camers, to only get camers that were present in either set. So only seen in male, only seen in female. With that being said, there was one thing I did forget to mention about the Lictrum that also makes it super cool to study this is that in the Lictrum dioicum, it is thought that they have XY chromosomes. Oh. Yes. Okay. Don't know how I forgot to mention that. I mean, (laughs) I would never have thought to even ask. So that's interesting. (laughs) Yes. So they have XY chromosomes, but they are homomorphic, meaning that if you were to do a chromosomal squash and to look at them, you wouldn't be able to distinguish the X and the Y. So like in humans, the X is large and the Y is like this little bitty tiny chromosome. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's very weird when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, it is very tiny. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um. So in the lictrum, you can't tell a difference between them. So okay. if you do a squash, you can't see it. Um, and so one of the ways like it was thought there was a crossing experiment that was done um, a long time ago by Westergaard. Veronica looked at uh, the sex ratios. They were having a one to one sex ratios in their offsprings that also leads to the thought that there's an XY system. Okay. So one of the other things I'm kind of looking at is I want to genetically also say like, oh, yes, there's proof here that it is XY. 
So I have these benzocamers that are specific to males and females with the idea that there's going to be some reads, some groups of camers that should only be seen in males. If there's this Y that's not in females. And so I've done that and I'm going to compare those two, separate them, find the reads that match those camers then take those and assemble them. Um, and once I have that genome assembly, I would also be able to map them back. And so if I do have female specific ones, I would assume they wouldn't map to a certain area. And if there are some, cause there could still be some female specific reads sure. um, that are only on the X maybe that the males don't have. But yeah, so basically I'm just kind of searching for things that are seen in one and not the other. And from some like preliminary research that I've done, um, I have been able to look at those camers. Um, And so one of the things is that if it is XY, when looking at the camers, so you're going to see a whole lot that have been seen one time, (laughs) for instance, you know, there's going to be tons of them. And then what I did was I just broke it down into thresholds. So being seen 10 or more times okay. um, by fives, 15, 20, 25, 30. Um, and what happened is at a certain point, there's a break where your female camers drop off. Ones that are specific, only in females, only seen, it drops off to where there's not a high number of them being seen. Hmm. Whereas in the male ones, you have these camers that remain high in presence and they don't drop off until later at the end and those are the ones that I'm mostly interested in as to start looking at cameras that are seen say 30 or more times and the reason that they don't drop off in the males is because they should be located in that Y specific region there should be more in the males that's not present in the females or you would have that drop off if that right, kind of right. if that doesn't make sense. So yeah, so I I was able to confirm that for wow. Wakem. I recently got in Daisy Carpum Illumina sequencing. So I'm doing the same thing. And so Daisy Carpum is in the opposite clade. So that's why I'm wanting to look at that to do that comparison of if they've taken the same right. evolutionary route. Okay. <sighs> yeah. So, I know. I'm like, I should take a break and breathe and say. Do you have any questions? I mean, mean, you have such amazing grasp on like where this all began and how it got to be this way that like that I could just sit and listen to that and just go like, this is amazing. (laughs) And it just goes to show you like follow your curiosity and, and, you know, if the passion's there, you're going to figure out how to do it. I mean, it might, like you said, there's going to be some bumps, but you know, it's very obvious that you are extremely passionate about pursuing this. But what's amazing too is kind of going back to what you had said about thinking plants were boring and then realizing they're not, they're amazing. They're doing all this wild stuff and it's so alien compared to what we're thinking about in terms of our day-to-day lives and operations and even just like extending it to mammals. But then you added this layer of complication to this idea that even, you know, you're looking at two lineages within a family of plants that could very well be doing something completely different and ending up with a similar result. And it sounds like you could go to another lineage and get a completely different story. So all of what we take for granted in mammalian systems all goes out the window when we start talking about plants. And so literally this could change no matter what group you look at. Yes. 
Yes. What the heck, yes. plants? <laughs> what the heck, plants? And I tell everyone, like, I, I, and I say it all the time. And I think why I'm always like, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> What's because, happening? Just because my meandering way into plants. And then I said, oh, where's the messiest part of plants? <laughs> how can I That's really complicate I things? That's what I want to do. Yeah. And they have so many different ways of doing it that I'm still trying to like wrap my head around and be able to remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, like spit things, things off. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just don't ever think about these type of things. And, and when I talk to like common people, they're like, what research do you do? I'm like, okay, Melody, don't go too far in the weeds <laughs> yeah. because you have entered to the realm that goes straight over the head really quickly. Yep. <laughs> and so usually I just start with, I'm like, I study plant sex. And they're like, what? Plant sex? Plants have sex? <laughs> I'm like, hmm, yes, they do. Uh, I want to sit by you on an airplane. <laughs> I've had these airplane moments nice, where good. someone they ask about my research. It starts very like, oh, I work with plants. I'm interested in sex determination. And then the sex comes in. They're like, huh? Mm. And then it just starts snowballing. And then the flight's over. Yeah. yeah. And they either get it or they don't. But you've talked. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so I'm also super amazed at how many people have no idea about like flowers and the fact that they have, you know, like stamens and pistols. I talk about that and they're like, huh? Yeah. Like, yeah, they're bisexual. Most of them that you see, right? they're going to have these structures and there's some that only have one or the other. And they're like, huh? Come again? Wow. Yeah. It's cool. It is wild to think about. Uh, and, and even I have to kind of sit down and remind myself sometimes because you do get ca like caught up in the beauty of flowers and sort of just the intrigue of like the aesthetic appeal of them. But, you know, when you really start to peel apart, like you said, plants are not getting up and moving. They're not selecting mates. They're relying on third parties. Sometimes it's physics of wind. Other times it's more directed uh, by animals, at least, or something, mm -hmm. some vector. But there's also many different strategies within that. And yeah, this idea that, you know, they can have perfect flowers with both parts and then some are just one or the other or some have a combination, whereas others in the population are one. It just it's so bizarre to think that there are that many different ways to have sex that kind of all come together for the same purpose. Right. I mean, it's like how many different ways can you get to the same end result, which is seeds? Yes. And there's so many. And it's <laughs> <laughs> I just like if anyone can't see the look on her face like it is like overwhelming there are so many like oh my god <laughs> good thing you have a whole career ahead of you <laughs> yes yeah. I was like I picked a good one to, yeah. to decide that that's what I wanted to like kind of focus on um and I also just kind of like thinking about it I'm also one of those people when I got curious like into science which really I'm just curious about everything yeah, yeah. So with getting curious about science, it's like humans, or I should say people, let's call them people. Yeah. Um, most of the time, they're only interested in anything that affects them. Right. And so when I tell people like, oh, yeah, I'm getting my doctorate. They're like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, yeah, it's in plants. They're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, are you like looking for medicinal plants that like help cure cancer? Are you? And I'm like, no. And then, you know, I tell them like plant sex and they're just like so 
I'm like, well, curiosity. And then I have to tell them, I'm like, well, this, this can benefit you because understanding, you know, how plants have sex, how their flowers form could help with growing your crops or figuring out different ways, or if you figure out the pathways that unisexuality is being formed, then maybe you can alter some crops to help in drought, or I don't know. There's so many different ways, Right. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm not in it for the people. I'm into it for just the knowledge and curiosity and just adding that to knowledge. I was like, now someone else out there will stumble across my research. (laughs) Right. And then make it and solve cancer. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, just, I'll just be the curious scientist. Yeah. And that's a really good, I mean, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to go any specific route with it. You can just be curious and explore these sorts of ideas and make your mark on whatever part of this you want to make because that's how science works. It's not that we're all working towards the same individual goal. We're eventually getting to the point where we put it out there and who knows what happens to it. I mean, I can't think of a lot of examples where things that, you know, benefit humanity started by asking a question of how does this benefit humanity? It's someone stumbling across a line of research like, okay, you work on these mad box genes, right, which direct development, but they're not only in plants and understanding how altering them and knocking them out and moving them around and different combinations of them, which are present in some and not others. I mean, that that could have wild applications in and of itself, but also, you're you're resolving something about a really cool group of species, and that in and of itself is amazing. You've left your mark on plants, and, and kind of going back to what you had said earlier, you know, you came across this paper from the 20s, and it's been that long since someone has even thought to do this, and it just goes to show you that even stuff that, you know, we take for granted, we go outside, we see it, we're like, oh yeah, probably everyone knows everything there is to know about that. No, that's usually not the case. So you've actually combined really great observational work and kind of dredged up this idea that it's not always about the most modern science that gets you started down this road. Yes. Yes. That's one of my things. Um, I try to convey to everyone, like when I think about science and why I do it, I do it to one, bring other people into science, my curiosity, to spread that curiosity, hopefully get other people curious that maybe they pick up a little habit in, in science anywhere. It's not even like they have to be an expert in it. Sure. And then my other big motivation within, I would, I guess I would say my career path, um, because I, I want to stay in academia and it's to be a representative, you know, um, yeah. being a black woman in science, you don't come across too many of us. <laughs> um, and so I just want to be like a face, you know, to tell people like, you can do this. Yeah. It's easy. Well, uh, no, no, well, let me take that. Back. <laughs> I say it's easy. It's easy to get curious and to get <laughs> into it. Now, while you're in there, <laughs> not as you have easy times. There will be struggles. There will be struggles, but in the end, it's so rewarding when you get that data, when you get to share the information. Um, and so that's one big thing that like keeps pushing me because I know that I have a lot of different friends that have been in graduate school and a lot of them are just like, I just got to get this degree and <laughs> I do not want to see academia again. Bye. Um, get me far away. <laughs> and, and they ask me, they're like, really? You want to be in academia? Why? I'm like, well, I'm curious. 
I like research. I enjoy learning. I enjoy teaching other people. So I think academia is where I belong. Like, I don't know where I'll fall. Um, I might end up back in a little school like where I began, um, which would be fun and in my mind kind of amazing because I could guide people and show them like, hey, this is where you are and give them the information on steps if they would like to be able to go further, how to get there. Whereas I didn't necessarily have that guidance to get to where I'm at now. I've kind of found it only along the way. So totally. And you are the type of person you want to see go that route. You want it, right? And that's that's first and foremost the person you want in those positions because you see, I mean, you see it all the time in academia. People that got in there probably thought this was their dream job and it's too little too late. And they're like, oh, I'm having a blast. <laughs> but you are living proof that it takes all it takes is one person to inspire you and unlock all of these doors and send you down a bizarre path you never thought you were going to go on. And yeah, representation, but also this idea of, you know, kind of again tying it back into who knows what's going to come next with this type of research is that's why we need a diversity of backgrounds and interests and experiences because what motivates me in science is not necessarily what motivates you, someone else. And, and that is where you start to get these different trajectories that end up, you know, really benefiting everything. And then again, you can make all these arguments about benefiting a species benefits the ecosystem, which benefits us. You know, there's just like, it's we're all part of this planet. (laughs) Yes. And then I like to do the key that I'm sure people roll their eyes. And I'm like, (sighs) the plants are the ones we all depend on. Yes. (laughs) If you get rid of them, we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They will out survive us. (laughs) I hope. hope. (laughs) Yes. No, it's so true. I mean, that's that's just it. If you really want to strip it down to its most fundamental components, plants really are the foundation of all of these systems. And, you know, I was just watching something the other day on deep sea vents, you know, these Mariana Trench ecosystems. And, you know, you think chemosynthesis, they're living off of sulfur and bacteria. But they were like, oh, these isopods are the main backbone of these ecosystems. And most of what they're eating is driftwood washed out from onshore. And you're like, plants are everywhere. (laughs) Sunlight makes it to the Mariana Trench. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's amazing. Oh, that's great. Yes. And so obviously you still have work to do, you know, not rubbing that in or reminding you of that on a Monday afternoon here. But, um, you know, it sounds like what you've done is you have found a really cool path, a really great system to study sexual expression in these plants and start asking questions that, you know, relate to this lineage, but can unlock a lot of interest in some other things. But you mentioned this was all kind of based on a hypothesis. And that's another cool thing to bring up is that, you know, you can come up with these scientifically informed hypotheses about how the system evolved in the first place. Because like you said, this idea of having perfect flowers is great when you sit still and don't move anywhere. But then thinking of the opposite of that, having male and female and different plants and and potentially being separated by vast distances, that can complicate things. But then you have to ask, well, it has to be evolutionarily advantageous. And that's where it kind of sounds like you're taking that next step from that hypothesis that was generated and trying to figure out, A, how this works and to understand how it works can then give you insights into how it might evolve in a stable way, correct? Yes, that is completely correct. Whew, no no pressure. <laughs> None at all. None at all. 
yeah, I, I, I like to think that like whenever I think about a scientific question, you know, like there's all the science and like the nitty gritty things that go on, like phylogenetics, uh, taxonomy, the genomics of things. For me, it's like I want like this complete story, mm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like I could just tell you, I could just say, I just want to understand unisexuality. Like, how does that happen? And just do genomics on understanding how plants are genetically determining sex. But for me, it's like, I need that full story. Like, <laughs> so this is how they're doing it. When did that happen? How? Why? Was it? Were they in a certain environment where they needed to do that? Are there some transitions within a group where they might have went back to hermaphrodism because hmm. they were far apart? So I just like the complete story and how, like you said, it just kind of opens up doors. Yeah. Curiosity. Yeah. Your curiosity, you figure out one thing and then you open up this door and you go into something else. And <laughs> and, yeah, and here you are right and it's it's really refreshing to hear that too and that's what really attracted me to the sort of questions you were asking and the research you were doing is it, it really is kind of this holistic approach to doing science which you you know and again not downplaying anyone's avenue or approach to doing it but you literally could spend your entire phd and career just on the genomic side of this but no, there's the natural history component, there's the evolutionary component. And, and you know, you outlined it so wonderfully and eloquently that it, it almost just builds on each other. And you could see where that like, oh, OK, next step. Oh, OK, next step. And you're just building this wonderful staircase to like like this narrative of more complete holistic picture of the system that you're in. And then you go, OK, now that I've kind of figured this one out, who's next? <laughs> who's next? Yes, that is exactly how I feel. <laughs> nice. That's yeah. great. And so, you know, with that in mind, like what is over the horizon? You're still working towards your PhD here and you want to go into academia, but it just sounds like you've set yourself up or, you know, any interview you get for a job could be like, what are your ideas? Well, here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's what I'm, this is what I want. Yeah. I already have a lab decided. Like, yeah. this is what we're studying. <laughs> I'll include people from here that want to do this. They can use any plant that they want. <laughs> yeah. I'm already talking to prospective students. It's, <laughs> Um, so right now, um, like I said, it's been a up and down journey, which I also tell a lot of people that are thinking about graduate school and like, mm -hmm. get ready because I cannot tell you what it's going to be like. Oh, yeah. Um, it could be easy. There are people go straight through easy breezy. I was like, or you can have some ups and downs. So for me right now, I am aiming to graduate this coming up May, May, 2022. Nice. Um, and that is my goal. If I do not hit that goal, it will be okay. Yeah. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, because I don't think it will be too far behind it. Sure. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. And then the next thing will be the wonderful postdocs. Yes. Um, I'll just be looking for somewhere to start a postdoc because I do feel like I need to kind of build up my manuscripts, my rep, um, papers, just because, like I said, my trajectory was kind of meandering a little off. And so I want to get some more of those skills just to get papers out because that seems like something like in science, unfortunately, yeah. your worth is it's the currency <laughs> of it all. <laughs> the papers. Yep. Um, so that's my idea. And then after that, just looking for jobs at different universities and doing the interviews 
I'm always talking to my friends that have like, are like a couple steps above me to yeah. see how it's going. Yeah. Um, What's it like out there? What's it like? How's it going? Is it as scary as it seems? Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, that's basically it. And to have a research lab that studies sex determination and unisexuality awesome. and I would say probably like angiosperms, like yeah. all the flowering plants. Yeah. Just, you and know. to just cultivate knowledge. You yeah. Know? You know? <laughs> Follow curiosity and just the world of angiosperms. Not a big deal. There's not that many of them. <laughs> There's not that many. <laughs> oh but yeah so that's that is me that that's where i'm that's fantastic and it sounds like the the hardest part of it all which is staying passionate and enjoying what you're doing you've got that on lockdown and and my old advisor and to to this date all the best advice people have given me is it's not a race just do it make it happen you know there will be hurdles there will be setbacks but just as long as that passion's there, which you definitely have, and you're definitely curious, and you're definitely hardworking, I think it's going to be a fruitful endeavor for you. But that's fantastic. And I think you know everyone listening wishes you the best of luck in that trajectory. And with that in mind, if they want to keep up to speed to some extent, uh, you know, again, no pressure. Uh, but if you have any ways that people could learn more or find out more about you or you don't want people to find out, that's fine, too. Uh, where do you go recommend they go looking? So I currently do not have the best um, online representation, but I'm working on it. Um, I do have a Twitter um, and you can find me at Mel P. Sane. So at M-E-L-P-S-A-I-N. Also, if you just wanted to like reach out to me, email is wonderful. Anybody can reach out to me on email. Um, so msane at wisc.edu. And yeah, so those are my main two um, sources to where you could find me mm-hmm. um and i'm always eager to talk to people so you can all anybody can send me an email and ask me anything <laughs> excellent <laughs> yes we'll add those links for everyone to find you and hopefully contact with a lot of curious questions and follow-ups and you know thank you because i really thought i was going to come into this conversation kind of thinking okay plant sexual expression how complicated could it be? Uh, you have told me that it is extremely complicated and makes plants even more amazing and cooler than they already are. So anytime anyone can do that for a, a fellow plant nerd, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're very welcome. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, best of luck in everything. Keep in touch. You're welcome back on at any point to talk about new advances, all the cool stuff you're finding, uh, and, and any new systems you decide you want to uh, tackle in the coming years so again thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us awesome thank you matt of course hang in there stay healthy and uh go metal ruse yes (laughs) cheers cheers all right pretty remarkable stuff isn't it it just goes to show you that you don't need to be completely obsessed with plants your whole life to become completely consumed into how amazing the botanical world truly is I thank Melody for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't wait to get her back on to talk to us all about what kind of things she finds out moving into the rest of that research. Of course, all of the relevant links to getting in touch with Melody can be found in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. You can also find all the relevant links for every episode if you want to keep this education ball rolling. But yeah, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to support this podcast and help it keep coming out each and every week for free, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. And it helps you keep the botanical ball rolling even more because I'm putting out multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. 
Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and to tell your friends about this podcast if you haven't already, because word of mouth is how we get more people listening. And the more people that listen, the more people that may be bitten by the botany bug. All right, everyone, that is enough for me this week. As always, there's so many great conversations just over the horizon, so stay tuned. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.